the narrative now is it's okay to want to quit, but you just can't. You know, I didn't come this far to come this far. And I've learned that as long as I help people, there's this feeling I have inside of me um, that really creates the value that I've always been looking for. It's not that it's not the drugs. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with another episode of Comeback Stories. And today's guest is Tony Hoffman. Tony's a former BMX elite pro and placed second at the 2016 World Championships. Tony was also a 2016 Rio Olympic Games coach. His story is full of redemption as he has seen some of the highest highs and lowest lows. Tony's presented at TEDx and his goalcast video that went viral in February of 2020 has been viewed more than 10 million times. He's the founder and director of the Freewell Project, a nonprofit organization that mentors thousands of youth through action sports. Today, Tony's a changed man and inspires so many to live their life with purpose. And it's an honor to have you here, brother. Thanks, fellas. It's an honor to be a part of the show. It's crazy how this kind of all came together. So I'm grateful to be here and, and share my story and talk with you guys. Yeah, we're excited. So tell us a little bit about what growing up for you was like. So I grew up in uh, your typical middle-class family, I would say. I was a part of one of the top public schools in the United States, but it wasn't a private school. My mom and dad have been married for 47 years this year, but they were workaholics. So growing up for me was really kind of just figuring out life myself. It wasn't my parents, you know, being at work all the time wasn't necessarily intentionally trying to neglect me, you know. My mom and dad started in a trailer. My dad was told that uh, he had to have $5,000 in his bank account if he wanted to uh, marry my grandpa's daughter, which is my mom. And so he dropped out of high school, went and got a job driving trucks and uh, built up his savings account, got five grand and said, I'm marrying your daughter. And uh, they started in a mobile home and moved to Central California for a management position in the trucking industry. And they just had to work a lot. And the only thing that really kept me busy while my parents were working was sports. Clovis Unified was known for sports. So I got involved in sports. And then I just kind of, it just came to me. I was a naturally gifted athlete. I could play all the sports. My first dream was to go to the NBA. I was telling Darren, I'm I'm an NBA guy. Like I love basketball. And uh, I grew up in the want to be like Mike era, right? Everybody wanted to be like Michael Jordan. And uh, I would watch Come Fly with me every day after school. And I would go in the backyard and I would play basketball until you couldn't see the hoop anymore. And that was, I found my gift in, in basketball, but you know, I'm a short white guy. And uh, those came with its challenges by the time I was in middle school. But the bigger challenges for myself was the cannon up here. You know, I, I just, I wasn't coachable. I struggled with my dad not being at my basketball games. My dad was my hero. And uh, when your hero doesn't show up for you, there's only one other person that can show up for you, and that's yourself. And at 12 years old, I didn't have the life skills to show up for myself, um, to have that positive affirmation to myself. I just saw everybody else's parents and kind of had a victim mentality and the, why does this happen to me and not them? And I found myself slip away from sports on the team side of things. And so growing up for me was, uh, like I say, was I had the foundations, but there were some pieces that were missing for myself. And uh, processing a lot of my anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts that occurred about the time that I was 12, I didn't know how to do it. And I really didn't have the instruction from my parents who are, are typical boomers. Their emotional intelligence is like that. They weren't going to be able to give me the tools either. And so that was a struggle for me. 
my, my childhood was solid, but emotionally and, me- and my mental health was out of control. Can you talk about some early memories of pain or struggles that you had? Yeah. So I always, when I give my speeches uh, and I travel a, a lot speaking, I talk a lot about 12 years old. Uh, 12 years old was when I was in this moment where I was creating a belief system about myself as a person. And at 12 years old, I was going to decide who I was and what I was capable of in the world and kind of how my perspective was going to look from that day forward. And I remember struggling with myself. I hated who I was. I didn't like that I was short. I didn't like that I had social anxiety and couldn't make friends like everybody else. The only thing I had was my sports gift. And I really started to hate that because it brought me attention that I didn't want, right? Like everybody wanted to be like me. I couldn't, I didn't just play baseball or basketball. I played basketball, football, rollerblade, skateboard, soccer. I did them all, right? And I was the best on the team. So I got attention that I didn't like. And so I'm trying to explain to my mom one day that I hate myself. Like, I don't know what to do. I hate myself. There's this emo- all these emotions that are just like racing through my body. I don't know how to process them. I don't know what they mean. And I looked at my mom and I said, I want to kill myself, mom. And she just had this blank stare. You know, she didn't know what to do. And she had no answer for me. She just stared and looked at me. And uh, I literally just, it made me worse because I felt so disconnected from my house from school, from society. I felt like nobody understood me. And I just literally turned around and I ran and I jumped into the wall. And I was like trying to show my mom, like, please, I fucking need help. I'm dying on the inside. Like with all this stuff that I got, I'm dying. And that was, I, I think, the beginning for when, again, I made a limiting belief system about myself. And then I went out into the world to kind of confirm that belief system through my thinking, through my behaviors. Um, through my relationships until I came to a reformation period of my life. What do you think the root of not wanting that attention was for you? If you were getting all this attention, you were succeeding, but you weren't comfortable in your own skin receiving it. What was that rooted in? Not wanting to be better than people. I didn't want to be treated like I was better than than you or Darren or the average Joe. I, I felt... And I've always been this way. I helped kids in my neighborhood get better at sports. I'd rather help you become the best at sport than be the person that defeats you in sport. So you have to feel what it's like to lose to somebody, right? And this was a struggle all the way to when I came back to BMX after prison. I had to hire a sports psychologist to help me understand it's okay to be more gifted than somebody else and beat them. It doesn't mean that you're better than them. It just means that in competition... You have a special gift that allows you to do things better than they do. And it wasn't until I accepted that, that I actually performed at my highest. And so that struggle when I was younger is that same mechanism. I don't want to be better than you. I just want to be a normal person. And a normal person doesn't get that type of attention, right? I didn't ask to be good at sports. I don't think any athlete at Darren's level asked to be good at sports. They just played it and found out they were good at it and pursued that as a result. And I didn't like that attention where it felt like I had to be somebody better than somebody else. Who would you say your, your first real teacher was? In, of life? Of life, yeah, or in general. So, you know, I'm 12 years old at this time. I was in prison by 23. And a lot of my teachers that taught me life were people I neglected when they were teaching me. My first big basketball coach, Coach Ford, 
has become one of my teachers of life. We have a relationship now. I hated the guy when I was in sixth grade. And you think, well, wow, that's so young. But there were so many things that he was trying to get me to see when I was in sixth grade, starting in third grade, actually, when he came out to the basketball court, he stopped his class during our recess and came out and said, young man, what's your name? Because I was just out there playing basketball by myself. And he's like, I want you to come out and be ball boy for, for my team. And uh, he tried to teach me a lot of things about life that I wasn't ready to learn at that time. When I got to prison, I was going through a lot of stories in my life, these memories. And I felt like these memories had some kind of purpose. Like, why did I remember certain things and not other things? And Coach Ford really was trying to teach me how to be disciplined. He was trying to teach me how to sacrifice what other people weren't willing to sacrifice, right? The Mamba mentality, like the ability to focus on a craft because you're gifted at it and go on and above what other people do so you can be great. I didn't want to be great. And so he was probably my first life teacher. And then I had these little moments I talk about in my book that's about to come out. You know, I had a ceramics teacher that really uh, shifted my perspective on how to meet troubled youth where they're at. You know, a lot of times we try to put people on an assembly line, especially in institutions like school. And if they don't fall on the assembly line, we try to get rid of them instead of trying to figure out what it is that that person needs. So they can be a part of what the assembly line is in their own little way and then move them on to life with a different type of skill set. And so my sixth grade basketball teacher, though, was my first one. Man, as, a, as somebody that's you know, escaped the holds of addiction, I want to you know, acknowledge you first for that. And watching uh, that Goldcast video, I saw you when you said you said like you plan on only smoking weed like one time. And that really hit me because I was like when I was younger, I. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to drink. Like, and then I ended up, you know, wanting to be like experimental, but the, the places addiction took me, I was not planning on going there from the start. And so can you explain like what that ride was like for you from when your addiction began until uh, you said you went to prison at 23? Yeah. So it, it was, it was that it was, I'm just going to smoke weed. A lot of it was, I quit racing to take a computer job. So at 18, I'm on the cover of the largest BMX racing magazine in the world sponsored by Fox, Airwalk Shoes, Spy Sunglasses, these companies that didn't sponsor amateurs. I had the world in BMX if I went that route, but it's a niche sport. There was no money. So I quit to go take this networking job in San Diego. But this was before I graduated high school. I was offered this job. So I started going to parties and a person with social anxiety doesn't do well at parties. Like you go to parties and you sit by yourself, but that was like turning, right? That was turning in me, just making my anxiety worse. And so it was like, all my friends were smoking weed. I'll try smoking weed. And with the mindset that I'm not going to do this like they do. You know, I, I, there was a part of me that knew I had potential to be bigger than that. And that's not to say that if people smoke weed, you're not big. It was just, I felt like there was something more for myself than mind altering substances. But what I didn't understand was the emotional mechanisms that were causing disruptions in my life starting when I was 12 were going to lead me on an experimental phase until I found the one thing that got rid of anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and fixed me. Uh, and that was Oxycontin. I was 18 years old when I tried Oxycontin. Everybody knows what Oxycontin is these days. It's the foundation for the opioid epidemic in the United States. It's claimed over 500,000 people in the last 10 years. And when I took Oxycontin, I felt fixed. And I told myself, I'm just going to use this because it makes me feel like I'm a better person. It makes me feel like all the things that I was struggling with starting at 12 years old were gone. And at that time, you know, 
we had the DARE program to really kind of educate us on substances. And not that's not to say that because we only had the DARE program, this is why I went down this road. But growing up in a predominantly white middle-class area, we the DARE program said, stay away from crystal meth, crack cocaine, PCP, LSD, heroin. Like you couldn't get those drugs in Clovis. So that meant that drug addicts or people that struggle with addiction must have come from the other side of the tracks, right? So when we start getting into pharmaceutical pills, every single one of us are thinking it comes from a doctor. It's not a big deal. We're partying in a totally different way when it's really, you know, you can go play to, you can go play to turd. It's still, it's still a turd underneath. Oxycontin is no different than heroin. It just comes in a different package, right? So we're all using this and it's fixing me, but I'm not going to become the person that I'm about to become. And uh, within three years, I was armed with a gun and uh, ready to go into a house and commit a home invasion robbery. And we were actually robbing one of our best friend's families at gunpoint. The mom had a prescription of Oxycontin and she was getting thousands of these pills. He was originally selling them to us for like $5 a pop, which was dirt cheap for Oxycontin. And we all got hooked on these pills. Well, his mom caught him stealing these pills. So she started locking them up. When she locked them up, we would start going through the withdrawals. You know, and if you've never been through an opioid withdrawal, you know, I always just tell people, imagine the worst flu that you've ever had and multiply it by 10, multiply it by 100. And then have that flu multiplied by 10 or 100. And there's, an, there's a way to fix it. You can fix it by just taking this one thing. And that flu goes away instantly. If there was a way to take away the flu, every person would take it the second the flu happened. For me, you know, I've seen a lot of people do a lot of crazy things uh, to fix withdrawals. And for myself, uh, a robbery was what it was. And uh, we committed the home invasion robbery. It took a while for them to catch up to me, but my co-defendants were doing a bunch of strings of small arm robberies, robbing pizza people, crazy robberies. Um, and they got caught, started an investigation around my friends. They raided the place that I was at. And uh, took me to jail. And this wasn't the end because I, my parents stepped up. I hadn't seen them in three years. And they, uh, they came into my life. They paid about $30,000 for a really good defense attorney that kept me out of prison. Believe it or not, didn't tell on anybody the money, my skin color, and the fact that it was Oxycontin in 2004 kept me out of prison. But I get out with the idea that I'm never using again. 30 days later, I'm back on the horse. And uh, within two years, I was completely spun out on crystal meth, you know, staying up for two, three, four, five, six, seven, up to 14 days at a time. All my friends disappeared. And, uh, you know, I would tell people to pull the car over so I could get water out of the gutter and shoot gutter water, cook my heroin, use gutter water to cook my heroin and shoot it. And, uh, you know, it was, I always tell this story when people want to know what it was like for me at the bottom. I would be up for so many days, my eyes would strain out and I couldn't see anymore. And I would have to use so much dope, you would need two needles. And I, I couldn't see. So I'd have to put my arms out like this and I'd have to have people hit me because I couldn't do it myself. And it's reckless. I was absolutely uh, reckless at my bottom. I would go into grocery stores with loaded needles, heroin in my, in my ear, like there were number two pencils. I didn't care at the bottom. But you know what? I, I wasn't afraid to admit that I was broken, but my brokenness caused me to just not care. You know, I was trying to kill myself. You know, starting at 12 years old, I was trying to figure out how to kill myself. The drugs that I thought were fixing me 
or ultimately just another way for me to try and kill myself and end the misery that started when I was a young, a, a young man. You know, and it wasn't until I shifted my perspective that I was able to uh, escape from that and not need that. I think it's wild that, you know, the, these circumstances that can happen in our stories that, you know, we wouldn't wish on anyone and just how dark and just treacherous they can seem, but then they can turn into circumstances that lead us to transformation. Or, you know, we can look back on them now and see them as necessary towards building the person that we became. And yeah. I really got that when, you know, you said you, you got to prison, you were in your cell and you looked up and there was like a quote on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, man, it's like, it's crazy. It seems like maybe this was part of my story. Like this was part of the plan all along for me to be here and see this and be transformed. So what was, what was that moment like for you? And how did that change your life going forward? So I had a spiritual experience on January 21st, 2007. I broke into a house that night. I was arrested on January 22nd, 2007. 30 days later, I'm sentenced to prison and I go and I'm in that cell and I read that quote. And what I try to explain to people is, is that I was in prison the entire time. For 23 years, I was in prison. It was a mental prison that I created, right? And this is, you don't have to just be uh, on mind-altering substances or struggling with addiction to be here, I truly believe that the majority of human beings have created a prison in their mind. They, most of them don't know it. When I had this spiritual experience, um, what I try to get people to visualize is the concrete walls that were within my spiritual vision were changed to glass. And there was a door in the room. And I could see that there was stuff outside of the door that I wanted. And when I read that quote, I started to realize that there was a blueprint that something bigger than myself was trying to show me so I could open the door that I can now see. Because I try, I try to open it, but it doesn't open with physical hands. It's not something that you will yourself through. This is something that you commit yourself to on an inward journey, right? We hear about uh, it's an inside job. When you start to work on the inside, the doors of life of, that you can't physically see will open up and you start to transfer into these rooms of more depth, right? That's when you start to have compassion and empathy, increased amounts of love, increased amounts of understanding about yourself and about others. And so when I read that quote, it was like the blueprint. Everything started here. If I could change this, then I could change everything about my reality that I was living in. I just didn't understand where I was going to start, you know, because when I was in a prison cell, I had the four goals. I'm going to get out of here, race BMX professionally. I'm going back to my gift. I realized probably like yourself, I was giving up on the greatest thing that life's ever given me, my gift, right? Like I, I, I resented parts of my gift. I was just good at it, but I didn't ask for it. Now I see that my gift was given to me for a reason. So I'm going to go back and get into that and I'm going to make it the most of it. I'm going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to do the impossible, start a program for kids. Because I, I need to give back. And then I'm going to tell my story because I want to help more people with my story. And I started reading a big book, not the one of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I read that if you could be trusted with little, you'll be trusted with much in the Bible. And I'm not a person that pushes my faith on people, but if you could be trusted with little, you'll be trusted with much. And then I had to learn how to be trusted with little, brushing my teeth every single day, uh, organizing my stuff, learning how to make my bed, do every all the little things that I could touch within three feet of myself. And so that's what it was like for me. It was like, I get into this cell, I read this quote, and I realize that something bigger than me has been trying to orchestrate 
a way to capture this so I could think bigger than myself. If I could think bigger than myself, then I can touch, feel, and see things that most people can't see and utilize them as opportunities to catapult me into this realm where my being is now so much bigger than myself, I'm able to impact the world that's around me. And that's really what I believe life is all about, is taking what we were given and seeing the opportunities that the universe or God is creating for us in a way that we embrace who we are to 100%. And then that draws people towards us to do the same thing for themselves and repeat that for other people. Like the gift that keeps on giving, you know? That's right. I heard a... uh... A pastor recently said that, um, you know, we're meant to be rivers, not reservoirs. And like how, you know, if water flows into a reservoir, it just stops there and just kind of sits there. Whereas a river keeps flowing and you keep on giving it to people. And it's like to get there, you know, we, you really got to address the thoughts first. And yeah. you know, what Donnie and I always talk about, it's, it's not the only story that matters. It's the story that you tell yourself. And it's like, you know, we have these overwhelming narratives in our head that we got to get rid of. So I'm going to ask you, like, what was that narrative for you ultimately? And what is that new narrative for you now? I guess the narrative for me now is one, to believe that I'm capable and that even if I don't feel love, that I'm, I, I'm somebody that is deserving of love and that I can love myself. Other people don't need to love me for, for me to feel value. And then the narrative is to just not stop. I spent the life, 23 years of quitting everything quitting everything, bro. I mean, I did band one time and the guy was like, nobody quits band. Never. Have I ever let somebody quit band? He let me quit. He couldn't wait for me to get out of there, you know, but it was just like, I couldn't commit to anything. And, uh, the narrative now is it's okay to want to quit, but you just can't, you know, I didn't come this far to come this far. And I've learned that as long as I help people, there's this feeling I have inside of me um, that really creates the value that I've always been looking for. It's not the, it's not the drugs. It's my ability to give back to other people, you know, and the, the river's not reservoirs thing. I, I recorded a podcast and I said, you know, if you think about it, we're the only species on the planet that just takes trees, give back animals, even give back, you know, plants give back everything that is like a living organism is designed to give back to the ecosystem. But human beings seem to be so selfish. We're stuck on uh, drilling out all the resources out of the world. We're f- trying to make the most money. We're trying to take from what people have instead of finding ways for us to give to other people. It's an interesting concept, you know, and I've tried to get away from that because I always feel discontent. If that's my narrative, take, 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 take. I just feel discontent, shame, and guilty because I know that that's not what I'm actually designed to do. Man, I hear. I love that in your, your the story you tell yourself today is rooted in self love. I heard action and service, and that's a that's a solid foundation. And and your analogy about how humans don't give, but it's amazing how we, speaking of us three on here at least, can actually give by just sharing our story. We re- recently just talked to uh, Laura McCown, who wrote "We Are the Luckiest." And I mean, we were talking about how she just nailed that book title. We are the luckiest to be able to have the messy past, which in in my program of recovery has taught me that really service is the answer to all my problems. Acceptance is also, but service is really what it's all about. And even for those shameful things, right? And even for those shameful moments to hear you 
tell your story in your darkest moment, but to be able to say, hear it in a way that feels empowering. It's just, su- it's such a gift and you're sharing it, man. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I, and, and the, the, the pandemic really tested me out because it, I, I had stopped coaching. I'm no longer coaching. Brooks, Brooks career is ending this year. She decided to step away from the Olympic dream at the beginning of the year for, uh, for her own personal reasons, which I supported. My nonprofit stopped because my speaking became so popular in 2016. So I've been focused on speaking, right? Well, then the pandemic happens. And uh, it wasn't like everybody just shifted to virtual. Very few people were hiring virtual speakers. And so it became so grim. It was like, man, I'm not doing uh, what I'm designed to do. And so um, I've had to learn to, you know, take this time to, to finish my book. And then, you know, I'm getting ready to start a, a rehab center next year. So I don't have to worry about an economic fallout or some kind of pandemic occurring that stops me um, from being able to give back through my experiences. You know, if I create a rehab, then it's based on who needs treatment, not what the government says I should be able to do or not do based on any kind of personal health or health crisis that we could be experiencing. And so I've just learned uh, to identify myself as an emotional being. As long as I do that, I'll always know who I am. Compassion, empathetic, intense, focused, determined. If I lean on those values, those values will always lead me to where I'm effective. If I focus on the car, if I focus on the house, if I focus on popularity, those will always lead me to an empty well. They might have a little bit of water, appear to have a lot of water in them in the beginning, but the truth is um, that water will run out really quick because the intention behind what I'm at that well for is is not in line with what I should be doing. And so that's just so important to me, you know, is finding ways to use my emotional value and experiences to help others. As you started to rattle off those qualities or, or those values, it was very clear that those were your values before you said that those were your values. And for anybody listening, the importance of un- no, doing the work, doing an exercise to understand your core values, which I always say would have been really nice to have learned something like this in school. And it had to do it every single year because we know our values can change if our direction changes. But to be able to just Google, Google how to find your core values values, how to figure out your core values to really get an understanding. They're the bedrock of who you are. They're an essential part of your being. And when you know your core core values, you know who you are at your core. And you can use your core values as a filter system to make every decision in life. You mm-hmm. can never make the wrong decision. And if you're living in alignment with your core values, like what other people say about us or other people's opinions just fall away because we know who we are, but it's when we get out of alignment with those core values is when really just shit starts to get a little messy. And that was, you know, it took a long time for me. I was lucky to go to prison. Absolutely lucky. I didn't have this. I didn't have this. I had a bunk and myself. And I literally had to sit with myself. And I, I, I got honest truth. I sat on a bunk and I asked myself, who am I? Because I don't know. And so I started going back in my life. And trying to find these segments where I was happy at one point, where I seemed to be carefree at one point. And then I said, what was it about you in that moment that you were happy? Why did you feel free in those moments? And then I said, okay, that's what I need to harness. These other things like you know, arrogance, 
and treating people poorly. Like I've got to get rid of those, but I got to harness these values. And I started to, like you said, break it down to to what my core values were. And and believe it or not, my core values have been me since probably third grade. Intense, focused, determined, third grade. That was me playing basketball until I couldn't see the hoop on the side yard. Compassion and empathetic. That was me helping kids in my neighborhood be better at sports, not wanting to be better than other people. That's that compassion side of me, right? The empathetic side of me that doesn't want individuals to feel hard feelings or go through harsh experiences. But it's taken time. You know, I think people try to go into that and they try to figure it out all in one day and realize, uh, need to realize that you just do a little bit each day. Right. And before you know it, you have four years of sobriety, like, like Darren does, right? Or you have 14, like myself. Donnie, I don't know how many you have, but we find ourselves in these positions where it's starting to accumulate. And once momentum occurs, the only thing that can stop momentum is ourselves, I believe. You know, I think Kevin Hart's said in one of his documentaries, you can't just take away what I've built. He can do it, but nobody else is going to be able to come in and take away what he's built because he's built it on honesty, integrity, and his core values. For someone to say, I'm lucky I went to prison, or I'm glad that things took longer than I wanted them to take, uh, that, I mean, I don't even have to ask you if you intentionally practice gratitude on a day-to-day basis, because I can just hear it in those statements. And I think back and it's like, today I'm like, yeah, I'm grateful for a lot of small things. And that's, you know, where I feel most connected with my day and feel like, you know, I'm, I'm really here for a reason. And, mm-hmm. but before, my first 24, 25 years of life, I can't remember a time where I was like, I'm grateful for anything. Like, or, or really was in that space where I was like, this means something to me, or I'm very lucky to have this. And, yeah. you know, I want to ask you, like, when did that start to click in for you when you became grateful for the just the tiniest things in life? And how has that helped you along your journey? Great question. And I actually have a, a, a specific story uh, of when gratitude took place in my life. So when you get to prison or in California, at least inmates can get packages and these packages can have Nike shoes, Dickies, white t-shirts, you know, sweats that are, you know, made by Jersey or champion. And some of these items are considered you're flexing if you've got a Dickies white t-shirt on, you know, which is crazy because out here, a Dickies white t-shirt means nothing. You can't put a Dickies white t-shirt into the community laundry. You got to put your laundry in a bag, tie it up, send it off the laundry. If you put a Dickies white t-shirt in there, it's the laundry crew is going to steal it because they want to flex on the yard, right? So you got to hand wash all your stuff. And I remember one day I was at Avenal State Prison and I had my little bucket with my Tide detergent and I'm scrubbing this white t-shirt, right? And it just hit me. And I was like, this t-shirt means so much to me in here. And it's just a white t-shirt. If a white t-shirt can have value, then how much more value does my time in here to meditate mean? How much more value does my time to change my life in here mean? How much more value does getting out of here, being able to walk, being able to breathe, being able to get on a bicycle, being able to have a mom and dad, being able to have a skill set that I'm aware of, being able to have the ability to articulate thought and communicate to people in a way that uh, inspires them. But also, how lucky am I to be challenged? You know, how lucky am I to blow my knee out in 2011 and be able to decide whether or not I'm going to still try and make it to the Olympics, just not the way I originally thought? You know, or in 2016, when I didn't speak one time after 2015 happened, how lucky was I? 
to have agents that were working behind my back and stopping me from speaking so I could learn how to control my own speaking career through my own web design, through my own marketing utilities to not only triple my income, but five times my income that the agents were able to be able to do that set me on this path of where I'm now going to invest in a treatment center. Like everything has become this moment where it's like, okay, I'm lucky that I get to have this moment because um, losing teaches me how to win. And the uh, and my gratitude for the small things teaches me how to be humble when I'm winning. That's uh, the gratitude for me. It, it definitely teaches me how to be humble when I'm winning. Like I feel like in my position in my career right now, it's like, yeah, it could be very easy for me to get back in tune with my ego and just ride that out as far as I could. But you know, the things that keep me grounded and make me feel like what I'm doing is meaningful is, you know, the lessons I've learned along the way, being grateful for those days at practice where, you know, I feel like I could drop or, you know, my legs are heavy, but it's like, you know, I will actually speak out loud and tell myself to to keep going or that this is going to pay off for me in the long run. Have you found yourself in a position where your team leans on your attitude more since getting sober? You find yourself in a place of influence that way, where you may have a, a brighter outlook on on certain situations that kind of illuminate onto your teammates. I, I would just be curious, you know, because what we've experienced makes us exceptionally different than the average person. It doesn't mean that these other guys don't work hard and have positive attitudes, right? They're all world class. But I would imagine that your perspective is a little bit different than these guys, and that's an influence on your team. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like just from... I mean, the way that I perform now, I guess, speaks for itself, but I feel like it's the, the journey as well. Like I was on a practice squad, you know, I was cut and told that I wasn't good enough and that I just had to basically be like a glorified tackling dummy for the team, but, and then worked my way into a position to where now people lean on me and rely on me. And, you know, through all that has had to come a sense of humility and just a, a sense of calm, you know, like there were times where, you know, I was like, I don't know if I'm ever going to play in a game again, or if my name is going to be in lights again, but those things started to not matter as much. And it was about, you know, every single step that I take on this field every day is important. Every single thing that I write down in this meeting or conversation I have with a teammate is important. I think people are drawn to that, I guess, because it's, it's real and it's nothing like uh, fabricated or something that they can't touch, or it's like too large for life. It's just like, yeah, real life like hey i'm here and you know i still have my days where i'm kind of anxious or you know not i'm i still may drop a pass every now and then but it's like like you said like the intense and the focus and the determination to like you know i can't give up on this journey now like as far as i've came on this like i have to be here and i have to accept that leadership position now because you know i i deserve to be in it because i know that i'm not just doing it for me and what i can gain out of it yeah, and I'm sure the other guys don't want to let you outdo them either, too, right? There's that <laughs> at the at your level. There's a lot of egos, you know. Right. If I was out there, I'd be like, "Well, I'm not going to let him work harder than me. I'm not going to let him do three more things than I'm doing with my day. If I see him taking out more time in his day when we're not on the field practicing, well, I'm going to do that too because uh, I'm not going to let that guy be better than me." Right, and then there's so, like another another layer to it. Like, I'm not on that outwork me, but it's like how consistently, how many times can he show up day after day after day and still do that same thing? Because it's like, you know, good, like you did it like one day, that's great. Like that's setting the foundation for, for more, but like how, how do you continue to show up after you've set that standard for yourself? Cause you know, it's what you should be doing. 
So that's where I try to uh, hold my teammates accountable. Yeah. I, my, my definition of discipline is the ability to do good work when you don't want to do good work at all. It's simple, man. Discipline is just the ability to do good work when you don't want to do good work at all. And we all have the days that we wake up and we're like, yeah, I don't really feel like doing it today. Mm-hmm. And our sobriety is built on no matter what, even if I don't feel like it, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get up and do what I need to do, you know, not what my body's telling me I want to do. Darren and I talk a lot about our morning routines. Do you have, sounds like you have a solid foundation. Do you have a consistent morning routine? And what does that look like? Yeah, I, I'm pr- like I'm a robot, I guess you could say. <laughs> I get up, I start my day like anybody else, shower, brush my teeth, uh, take my dog out. And usually when I take my dog out, it's usually a simple time of reflection. And meditation time is is not as long as it used to be when I was was in prison. And then I'll come back and I'll feed myself, make sure my brain is sharp with food, and then I'll get to work. I'm not a person that gets up at 4 a.m. That was prison stuff for me or when I was competing in sports. I know a lot of guys that are especially big speakers, they talk about how they don't need sleep and they're get up at three and get up at four. Not me. I, I get up at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, and I start my days. If I'm speaking, I might be running on three hours of sleep. But for me, the most important thing is when I'm in a vehicle, I spend a lot of time in meditation when I'm in a vehicle. And another thing that's been a part of my routine is when, when I start to feel anxious, I tune out of music. I won't even let music into my life. You know, I had a buddy that was a Marine. We started running stairs through the pandemic. Gyms were closed and uh, it wasn't during the morning. And he'd be like, you're not going to listen to music. I'm like, no, I'm taking a month off. He'd be like, why? (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know, man. I just feel like I need to listen to myself right now and uh, just see what myself is talking about. Because when I'm listening to music, I'm avoiding myself, right? Music's great. But um, so, you know, I take my dog out, meditate, get back, feed myself and then get to work. And when I'm in the car, I'm driving in the morning. It's always meditation time for me. It's fascinating how the, the quieter we get, the, the more that we can actually hear. Sometimes it's not what we want to hear, and that's why we're avoiding it. But we have to sit with that. You know, The only way we get through it is to go through it. And it all starts with the mind. It all starts with our thoughts. That's right. So I have a, a sobriety model, and uh, the bottom is spirituality. Our ability to instinctually contact something greater than ourselves in the good times, bad times, and indifferent. The first pillar is honesty with self and with others. And when we're trying to tune out, we're, we're failing to be honest with ourselves about something. And so that quiet time helps me learn how to be honest with myself. And that honesty with self also helps me get in touch with my core values, which actually drive who I am as a person and attract whatever it is that I need to attract to complete my purpose. But that when you said that, it made me think about the honesty pillar. It's just to spout it off, willingness, discipline, structure, routine, commitment to progressive self or self-help or groups, NAAA, and then lastly, giving. Those are all extremely important, not only for people that are in recovery, but I think people that just want to be better, right? Just be better. And that just sounds like a straight up spiritual toolbox. It is. And it's nothing new. You know, it's just kind of how it worked for me. Because people ask me, you know, did you get sober through 12 steps? I didn't. I got sober through a spiritual awakening that led me to the Bible. I took the spiritual teachings of the Bible. I applied them to my life. And then I went out into the world to do kind of these worldly things of accomplishments. And then with my time in sobriety and working with myself, I have learned what it is that's created what I'm doing. 
And now I'm creating systems out of it so I can really put it down so people can understand exactly what I've done. I think there's so many ways to recovery and I support them all, except for California sobriety. It's not really my big thing. <laughs> I'm not really a big fan on that one, but I, I, I'm open to people getting sober the way they need to get sober and doing what they need to do, what's best for themselves. So what would you say to somebody who maybe knows the biggest thing holding them back, but doesn't know what to do about it? What would you tell them? Talk to somebody that does. You know, I, I do a lot of work with treatment centers and I always tell them, I don't know everything, but I know how to get it done for 14 years. So ask me whatever you want, because there's no stupid questions to me. But if you don't ask, well, then I'm not going to be able to give you the light on the road that you're looking to, to walk. You know, sometimes a conversation is the one thing that's stopping us from having all of the tools we need in that moment to persevere. But if you just be quiet, you're stuck here. And if you're struggling, being stuck here is why you're struggling. That's it. Have a conversation with somebody. Being stuck in your head uh, and not creating that sense of community is, like you said, like we talked about creating that prison and living in that prison for 23 years before you even got to one. That speaks volumes. And uh, as far as community, you know, before we wrap up, we love to celebrate the people that have been with us on our journey and through the highs, the lows and, and, and everything. So if you could give a comeback story, shout out to one person or a few people, who would that be? My best friend, KP, for sure. He was functioning and that's scary. He was a functioning person of a struggle with addiction. And he's turned it around even after hitting the ground, I, I want to say six times. And he just kept getting up. And I appreciate him because he never was dishonest with me about it. And he kept trying and he's celebrated over a year and has gotten a promotion at his job. And the boss he thought hated him has sat down with him and, and told him how grateful he is that he's working for his family business. And for me, that's the, the, the standard issue comeback story, right? We have the, the ones that get all of the, the, the talk. Right. But what about the folks that, that, that don't get this platform? Right. KP is, KP is that guy. He's the one that shows up in the rooms. He's the one that does the work. He's the one that hits the ground and gets back up. He learns how to pick up a phone and have those conversations. And uh, he learns not how to live without picking up. And so my shout out is uh, definitely to my best friend, KP. KP, man. And shout out to you for being here today and for. You know, not quitting on yourself and uh, when it could have been very easy for you to do so, man, and so much wisdom and so many lives have been changed because of it. So we appreciate you being here, man. Yeah, I think, thank you guys for, for having me on here. I, I enjoy being able to have conversations like this and really just try to impact people's lives in a positive way. So thank you guys. Yeah, thanks, Tony, man. Your story is so inspiring. It's You're so sure about your words. I can hear the passion and the focus, and the discipline, and all these core values that you uh, you illuminate. So it's really cool to hear your story. I'm glad we finally connected and made this happen. Where can our guests find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Tony M. Hoffman. You can find me on Facebook, Tony Hoffman Speaking. Uh, you can find me on my podcast, One Choice, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts app, or you just search my name on those, Tony Hoffman, and you'll find One Choice. And yeah, Instagram is a good way to find me if you're looking for advice or trying to connect with somebody. You know, like Donnie said, if you if, if you know what you're struggling with, but you're not sure what to do with your first step, message me on Instagram. I, I reply to everybody. 
that sends me a message. This is my life work and I, and I really try to dedicate myself to being there for other people. So if that's you, send me a message. And, or if you just want to say what's up, say what's up. So yeah, you can find me there. Thank you, brother. We appreciate you. Yeah, thank you guys. Yes, All right, we're out. Peace. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, okay. but every king's gonna get crowned.